Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have an internationally known rock star, Matt Norman, will be joining us here shortly. So stay with us. All right, let me bring Matt in. Matt, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Ken. It's an honor to be here. Hey, I'm glad to have you. So I am pretty excited about this because you are a, I don't know the exact title. I'm sure you're going to share it with us, but you're really involved with the Dale Carnegie um, company. <laughs> Is that right? Am I saying That's that right? right? Yeah. Yeah. So I run one of the Dale Carnegie groups in the world and we're actually wow. the largest in north america our group and what? based out of the twin cities in minnesota really the largest in north america we're the largest in north america i think we're the second or third largest in well you know what actually can I, I i i need to correct myself new york just i think edged above us in north america but we're in the top three in the world. We we got to change that. Did we just become best friends? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I love Dale Carnegie's stuff, man. It sounds like you uh, you must as well. But so so you know, I created this show. Gosh, it's almost been three years now, um, and and I've interviewed over three hundred celebrities and entrepreneurs, and it's all about you know, helping people have a breakthrough as they get stuck in life. And um, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. So everybody do me a favor and please share this out because there's going to be some amazing value added to your lives today. So um, Matt, why don't we start with you telling everybody where you were born and raised? Thanks, Ken. <clears throat> I was born and raised in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. That was at the time a growing suburb outside of Minneapolis. And at that time, people were, it was a very safe community, fairly upwardly mobile, kind of a classic suburb in the 80s. And I've uh, spent my whole childhood in, uh, in that area, southwest of Minneapolis. Wow. And, and did you, is that where you went to high school and and grade school and middle school and all that? That whole process, yeah. It was a very safe area, generally speaking. Uh, very, you know, Minnesota nice. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. We like to use that phrase, uh, that adjective nice to describe Minnesotans. And that was really true about Eden Prairie. I mean, it was a nice place to grow up. People were nice. And uh, it was just, uh, it was it was kind of a... Uh, it was, uh, it was, as I say, it was a, it was a comfortable environment at that time. That's awesome, man. So, um, <clears throat> let's see, Robert says how to win friends and influence people. First self-development book read at 13, awesome. 1938 edition. My oh my gosh. gosh. That wow. is fantastic. Thank you. That Robert. sounds like a, a, cool. a 
Gittimer, Gittimer probably has that one in his library, I would imagine. I'll bet Gittimer, yeah, Gittimer has uh, many <laughs> editions of How to Win Friends and Influence People, including, I think, you know, one of the first editions. He's, yeah. uh, he's a collector. He is a collector. He, he's, it's ridiculous. So, so, um, so did you go end up going to college then? I did. Yeah. I actually went East, went to Boston college. Wow. Yeah. Boston. Wow. So that's how you got rid of that Minnesota accent. It was a different environment. I remember coming home, Ken, for Thanksgiving, my freshman year. And I declared at the Thanksgiving table that I was going to transfer back to a Minnesota college. Really? Uh, yeah. The East Coast, the Boston accents, the fast-paced <laughs> culture. It was not Minnesota nice anymore. No, no. It's way different, isn't it? Hey, well, I mean, and, and I love Boston. I ended up marrying a woman from New England who spent a lot of her life outside of Boston. And my only sibling lives outside of Boston now. So I love Boston. In fact, we're going there for Thanksgiving this year. But it was a different way of communicating and operating. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's um it's a little different. So it well, I mean, I'm I think considered Midwest, right? I'm 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 in the Midwest. We're different. We just like people. That's we, right. A little slower. I, I remember we lived in Vegas. My wife made Christmas cookies and decided, and we lived in this gated community and 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 she made Christmas cookies. And I go, what are you doing? Why did you make 6,000 cookies? What are, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm taking them to all the neighbors and I'm going to deliver Christmas cookies. I'm like, okay, That's have great. fun with that. That's and they great. were they were rude. They were they wouldn't answer their doors. Some woman, our, very, our next door neighbor, I never, I never even, I'm like, this is definitely not like the Midwest <laughs> at all. So, um, but anyway, so, so you, um, did you end up transferring back or did you graduate from Boston college? I stuck it out. My grandfather said, you're going to stick it out. Wow. And I, I'm so glad that I did. It was a phenomenal experience. Okay. So you, you, you have an undergrad in what? In finance and Spanish. Wow. Yeah, spent a year abroad, but, uh, wow. mainly a business orientation. Okay, cool. So, so what happened after college? Where, where'd you go from there? So I went back to Minnesota. I wasn't planning on going back to Minnesota. I had applied for a consulting role with, at the time, Anderson Consulting. Minnesota was my third choice, and that's what I got. I, the other two choices, I think, I had uh, too many people applying for. But I ended up back in Minnesota, back in the safe environment near my family and in the culture that I, uh, that I knew growing up. And it was with who? Anderson? It was with Anderson Consulting. Yeah, now Accenture. Oh, okay. And what? So what's that? In, what's involved in that? What do you? What do you do with a consultant? Well, company? you know, there's certainly uh, an element of management consulting in terms of, you know, process analysis and uh, organizational analysis and so forth. But a lot of it for me when I first started was in technology. I, I frankly was uh, coding software, building large enterprise technology systems, sitting at a desk with my headphones on wow. and uh, just kind of cranking out software code for these large implementations that we were doing at places like American Express and Allstate Insurance and uh, 
you know, large companies that were implementing big systems. So when you were like eight or nine or 10 years old, I mean, is that, is that what you envision? Like someday I'm going to be a software code guy. No, it never was. <laughs> it never was. I think when I was eight or nine or 10, I, I actually aspired to do what my dad and grandfather did. I'm so my grandfather got into the Dale Carnegie business in the ah. 1960s. Uh, he's, he worked for a car dealership, a family car dealership in Iowa. And Dale Carnegie offered a program in their small town in Iowa. He took the program, ended up leaving the car dealership ultimately and, and developed a career with Dale Carnegie. And then my dad followed in his footsteps. And so I always thought that's what I was going to do. Wow. Up until about college, uh, through as a child, I, I thought that's what I was going to do. Really? And then later in high school and in college, that that idea started to evolve. And and so you were sitting at Anderson Consulting doing this coding stuff. Um, how long did you do that? About three or four years. And was there a moment where you went, this, this, this isn't what I had hoped for. <laughs> you know what's interesting, Ken? I I sort of uh, took it hook, line, and sinker at the time. I mean, I, I, I kind of embraced, I mean, there was some, certainly there was a handful of, you know, there was client contact. There were a handful of meetings that we'd have to go to. And, you know, you'd, there was a lot of internal collaboration, but I ended up just sort of enjoying at that time, the introversion of just yeah. putting my headphones on and just doing something that was very black and white. You always knew, you know, coding software, you always kind of knew if it worked or not. I mean, you could yeah. test it and see if it worked. Right. And uh, so it was very black and white. Uh, I didn't take a lot of work home at that time. It was just a very in the box sort of safe, you know, controlled way of living. I mean, it was hard. We worked, you know, we worked hard. I'm not, I'm not saying it was easy, but it was at the time it, it felt, it felt comfortable to me. Yeah. <clears throat> And, and what happened? Well, so I ended up uh, meeting the woman who became my wife on a project. We were uh, both in, uh, in Boston, as it turned out. And so I, I ended up leaving Anderson Consulting, went to work for an emerging technology company. In, in, Boston. in Boston? Yeah, we both moved. I moved back to Boston. She moved wow. to Boston. She was living in Manhattan at the time. And I went to work for this sort of small, emerging technology, high growth technology company where I had to wear multiple hats. I was given probably more responsibility, more authority than I deserved at that time. And now I was back in the Boston culture and things started to change for me. It was no longer that comfortable, safe environment that I was back to in Minnesota. Wow. Okay. So where, where did things go for you from there? Because eventually you became an entrepreneur, right? I did. Yeah. So in Boston, about maybe in a year after I had lived there, I was in a conference room presenting to my team. I had about 10 people looking at me in a conference room and I had developed this pattern of thoughts that mm. were they were insecure, self-doubting, and uh, I, I just and, and high pressure. You know, because of yeah. this environment it was so different from 
just sitting at my desk, having my headphones on, developing right. software and this kind of big, you know, corporate culture to this now emerging situation where it was very uh, fast and cutthroat. And again, I was kind of out of my depth a little bit in terms of responsibility. And so I had developed these patterns of, of thinking to where in a, this conference room, uh, the patterns of thoughts manifested in physical reactions. I started getting short of breath, my palms were sweaty, my head got cloudy, and I'll never forget, I froze. I couldn't continue speaking. Wow. The people in the conference room were looking at me confused. I got up acting like I was clearing my throat or choking on something, went to the restroom, splashed water on my face, didn't go back to the conference room. And going forward, I avoided any opportunity to be in a conference room or to present to anybody because I was so fearful that that would happen again. And what had happened was a panic attack. And you, anyone who's had a panic attack knows that we you, you tend to become terrified of getting into an environment that may reproduce that panic yeah. attack. And so I avoided, I mean, I would hide in my office uh, with the lights off. Uh, one time laying on the floor under my desk because I was wow. so fearful that one of our executives would come by and grab me. We would often grab, we were, I was in sort of that mid-tier leadership role. Yeah. Often we would get grabbed and pulled into meetings impromptu and we'd have to speak. And the thought of me having to go into a conference room and speaking just terrified me. So wow. I avoided it at all costs. <clears throat> wow. And, and how long did that avoidance last? Well, it was severe for about nine to 12 months. Oh my gosh. I would wow. take time off work. I would leave work in the middle of the day to go for walks and try wow. to calm myself down listening to my headphones. And uh, at that time, a few things happened. One was I uh, had a renewed focus on my faith, which really mm -hmm. helped me a lot. Another thing that I did was uh, called my dad and asked what his recommendation was. And not surprisingly, he suggested I take the Dale Carnegie course. Really? So in Boston at that time, I enrolled in the Dale Carnegie course. And it was difficult, Ken, literally for me to drive the 20 minutes from wow. my apartment to the Dale Carnegie course. I was so terrified. I, I, I thought I would have um, a heart attack on the way to, and here I am, you know, 27 years old, wow. thinking I'm going to have a heart attack. I was diagnosed with high blood pressure at the time, despite being a fairly fit guy. And um, <clears throat> I, I could barely get there. And I, I remember being in the parking lot after about the fourth session, the Dale Carnegie course is a multi-session experience, you know, where each week they stretch your comfort zone. By about the fourth session, I stood in the parking lot with Clark Merrill, my trainer, and I said, Clark, I just can't get over it. I think I'm always going to be this way. I think I'm always going to be stuck in insecurity and panic attacks, and this is just who I am. I should just go back and code software at my desk with headphones on. <laughs> and um, Clark looked at me, he said, it's not about you. Mm. And I said, well, I, I get that, Clark. Yeah, I understand. He said, no, it's not about you. As soon as you stop thinking about yourself and focus on the people in front of you, you'll get out of your own way. Why don't you show up next week and stop thinking about yourself? And he gave me kind of that Boston direct, you yeah. know, in my yeah. face feedback that I needed. 
sort of like that and, scene. And, in Good, remember that scene in Goodwill Hunting when? Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So where, you where did that? you know him from? Where did you know him from again? Well, he just happened to be the trainer for the Dale Carnegie program oh, okay. that I enrolled in wow. on the recommendation of my dad. You know, I, I oh. grew up in the business. I always admired what my dad did, but I never really jumped into it as I got as I became an adult. I, but like, so, uh, okay, I want to back up a little bit because you said your grandfather was in the Dale Carnegie business. Your father was in. The, so you had never taken the Dale Carnegie course? You know, I took it. Uh, I, I read it, uh, the book early, and I took yeah. it. But for me, I think growing up in the safe suburb outside of the Twin Cities, Minnesota yeah. nice, you know, I took it and I thought, this is great stuff. But I never needed it to get unstuck. Yeah. You know, and therefore I appreciated it. Yeah. But I didn't need it. And so I didn't <laughs> value it to that degree. At that time, you know, it was it was the turn of the two turn to 2000. It was about tech. It was about finance, you know, and this was the direction I was going to go. Yeah. And I thought. This Dale Carnegie stuff, by the time I got into late high school and college, this Carnegie stuff, it's, it's you know, admirable, but, you know, I, it's not really where the world's going. You know, I mean, I need to go into a more of a cutting edge, something that I'm, you know, more excited to tell people that I do at a cocktail party than to say that, you know, right. I help people win friends and influence people. <laughs> right. That is hilarious. It's amazing though, what, uh, I'll just say God, whatever you call God, the universe, whatever you call God, but this, this force kind of um, forces us into what we're supposed to become. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it Isn't really cool? is. It's just, it's, yeah, it's amazing how we, I think develop ways of thinking and acting throughout our lives and yeah. probably in a, in, as a way it's the adaption to our environment. Yeah. And every day we repeat those ways of thinking and behaving as I did. And it, it helps us to succeed and, and maybe to survive in our environment. But then one day, like you say, you know, the, yeah. the universe or, you know, God, however you want to, describe that just sort of gets causes us to realize one day that this is not working for you anymore. This, this I, way, I, this is not going to work. I just wonder, Matt, if, if maybe there was a, um, a subconscious thing you had going on where you were like, no, I'm not doing what they did. No, I'm yeah. going to be my own man. Yeah. I think I no. I'm going to do my own thing, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I wow. think there was that. I think I felt like I needed to prove myself. Yeah. Wow. So, um, Hey Glenn, good to see you, bro. Hey, so, Glenn. so, so hey, that's awesome. So, okay. So you, you, the, the Dale Carnegie guy says, you know, build a bridge and get over yourself and, yeah. and stop thinking about yourself. And, and so what happened then? What, when you, when you showed back up? Well, I made it through the program, the multi-session program, and I it, it was transformative. I mean, I, at least I was able at that point to get back in a conference room. Now, despite uh, that, I still for years, Ken, I mean, for years, yeah. had a hard time getting in front of people. I mean, even to this day, as we're talking right now and reliving that story, 
my, I can feel my body starting to get a little bit tense. I can feel my throat getting full, wow. to swallow. You know, I mean, I, I, my palms start to get a little sweaty. And I mean, we're talking now, it's been 18 years since that happened. I still, so the last 18 years has been this journey of continuing to try to develop healthier patterns and how I think, relate to others, view myself and make choices about how I operate. Yeah. Okay. So you're back at work, you're back in the conference rooms, you're um, still feeling having some physical symptoms of this, this panic um, thing. And, and what, what eventually happened though, because you, you did not stay in that company, right? No, I didn't. In that company, we ended up selling the company. Okay. So like you say, sometimes the universe conspires for us, yep. forces our hand to do something. So I had to make a decision. I literally you, have, I have that hanging on my computer. Isn't that funny? Look at that. That's perfect. Always. That's uh, I think that I first read that in the alchemist. You ever read that book? I've, I just recently bought it and started reading it, but yeah, yeah I, I've not read the whole thing. It talks a lot about that concept, but uh, <clears throat> so I, I had to make a decision, but what I was going to do at that time, I ended up deciding to go work for my dad in the Carnegie business at that time. I thought, you know, number one, it was, I, I've developed a real passion for it. I wanted to help other people that were stuck. Yeah. In similar situations, particularly people like me who maybe had, you know, had had unhealthy thought patterns or viewed themselves in in a way that was unproductive, particularly those that are maybe more introverted, more of an engineering orientation like I was, yeah. who may feel more comfortable putting their headphones on and plugging away at developing software. Yeah. And so I, I went on a mission to work for my dad and try to help other people. I just really valued what he did. And I also, frankly, can I, I knew that going to work for him and learning to sell and having to present and coach other people would continue to stretch my own comfort zone in this area. You know, I find, uh, dude, this, this is interesting because you, here you are, you grew up in a, we'll call it a, a, I don't know about privileged, but protected, mm -hmm. um, Niceville kind of like suburbs and, and from the outside looking at you, you're this all American dude with the, the flowy blonde hair, the beautiful smile. I'm sure everybody looks at you and says, that guy is the all American kid and he's got it going on and, and is perfect in every way. And yet on the inside, there was a totally different story unfolding for you. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, wow. you know, it's really made me realize the story that's often unfolding inside everybody. Yeah. That they often don't project or, you know, they, they people, we do a good job hiding our story. We sure and do. So I, I just developed a real heart, particularly at that time in my life, for getting beyond the facade yeah. and getting at people's true story. I was forced to, I know Ken, you too, you're, that's part of your story. Yeah. You know, getting to that point in our lives where we kind of have to reconcile our, our true self, our true story, our, yeah. our own insecurities and flaws. And I, man, I was broken big time. Wow. And people will say to me, yeah, especially in this business, people will say to me, come on, you got to be kidding me. You know, you struggled with insecurity and relationships and communicating and that type of thing. 
And uh, because, you know, I, I grew up in a family where I was able to kind of put on this, you know, projection to the world that I was able to do these things. Yeah. And the reality is something else was going on inside. So I just really have a heart for getting at our real story. Wow. Dude, that's amazing. So, so you ended up going to work with your dad, um, for your dad, I guess, with yep. your dad, for your dad. Yeah. Um, and, and what was your role? Like you, you, it sounds like you weren't really in any position to immediately start coaching people. Right. Yeah. So I had to sell. That was the first thing right. I had was basically commission sales job. I had to wow. figure out how to carry a bag and, and sell what we did. Wow. And it was a lot of, I mean, it was, it still is, but every day facing my insecurities. I mean, every single day facing my insecurities and my comfort zone and, you know, just uh, everything that goes with a performance-based compensation sales job, you know, yeah. I had to face every day. <clears throat> and that is, dude, that's, that's scary. I mean, I, I've, I've been in sales most of my adult life. So, uh, and, and you know, what's crazy is I've had massive success and then massive failure because I, I, I allowed those voices that you're talking about, those fears to, to take over and like, start, start messing with my head. And, and, um, you know, they say that the hardest door to open every day is, is the car door getting out to knock on that first, that first place. Right. So have you have you done that cold calling? I'm sure. Oh you yeah, cold calling on the phone, cold walk-ins, yeah. businesses, all that, and it's like you say. I mean, I, I just couldn't agree with you more that the biggest barrier is ourselves. You know, it's oh, just yeah. it's so hard to get out of our own way, and and it's not just fear for me. Fear wasn't the only byproduct of those thoughts. The other thing was my effectiveness and my relationships. Because I would, you know, try too hard in sales meetings when I started to get, or I would, you know, just be too focused on my own agenda in a in a sales meeting. I mean, all these things that happen, which ends up, which ends up deteriorating our impact in relationships, yeah, or in our ability to influence somebody because we're so caught in our. And that's frankly, that was that's what I love about Carnegie. I mean, Dale Carnegie was all about that. I mean, his whole thing was. As soon as we stop thinking about ourselves and think more about other people, we're going to be better communicators. We're going to be less worried, less anxious, and we're going to have a greater impact on others. Yeah. I, I love the, 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 my, and I'm going to butcher it, I'm sure, by trying to paraphrase, but the story in the book about, um, uh, was it George Eastman, the sales guy that called on George Eastman? To, what was it? Selling him chairs or seats for his auditorium, right? Yeah, Wasn't it yeah. something like that. Yeah, and, and and the way that that unfolded, and uh, it just it's an amazing, amazing story. Well, and it is an incredible book. If you're in it sales is. and you haven't read How to Win Friends and Influence People, you need to start your career over today. Yeah, I agree <laughs> like, with you. And the other one, Ken, that was a big impact for me that he wrote is How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. You know, both books, like you say, are just these phenomenal collections of stories, many times famous people yeah. who had to get past themselves. They were stuck, like you talk about in your podcast. All the time. And, uh, and so much of it, I mean, all 
Every one of the stories really in both those books goes back to get out of yourself. It was just like Clark Merrill said to me in that parking lot in yeah. Boston 18 years ago, as soon as you stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about other people, you're just going to be less anxious and have a much greater impact. You know, and, and Matt, I think you'll agree with this. I mean, in theory, that seems like a really simple principle to live yeah. by. Yeah. And it seems like a glorious way to live, right? Right. But but the reality is it's very difficult if you're you're late on your bills, you got bills due, you got you can't put food on your table, you got, you know, it feels like the entire world's exploding around you and you want me to focus on helping somebody else? Are you out of your flipping mind? That's right. right? Yeah, it is. It's like you say, it's common sense. Right. But when the world starts crashing around us, it's not common practice. Oh, you know, we just and I think it's because, you know, I've, I've really gotten into in the last several years studying neuroscience and wow. realizing that, you know, our brains are wired to self-protect. Yeah. You know, it's this amygdala that we know is in the back of our brain that sits right above our spinal cord, has yep. direct control over our nervous system. And the job of that amygdala throughout human history has been to keep us alive. Survive. Yeah survive right yeah. and so if everything in me is or the primitive part of my brain is wired to survive then i am just going to constantly develop thoughts that are going to keep me right. alive you yeah. know and prioritize my agenda in my relationships and my work because my brain thinks that's the way to survive it's insane and and and, and dude you're right i mean it's the the better the better way to um, survive and and prosper even more in life, whether it's financially, spiritually, emotionally, with relationships, familial, is to to help others, give back first. Yeah, it's amazing, it's, isn't it? Yeah, I remember when I was going through that period of panic attacks, the real intense part of it in Boston. One of the yeah. other things that I did was I started to volunteer at a local school in the inner city. And I just, I remember showing up, there was no volunteer program. I just showed up at the door and I said, you know, can I just help out in this school? Teacher said, sure, that's fine. Why don't you just walk around and, you know, pay attention to the kids, ask them if they need help. And so I just needed somewhere to show up other than my own agenda. And, uh, you know, I don't tell that story to, you know, make myself you know, look like, you know, a saint or anything, because I'm certainly not. And I, and at the time, there was more than enough of my life that was self-focused. But I remember going into that school building every week and forgetting about myself was some of the most alive that I felt. It was the most joyful that I felt. It was it was the most authentic yeah. and least anxious that I felt. And so I think it's just the more we can try to replicate that throughout our daily lives, even in the mundane experiences of our lives, I think the more joyful we are and the more impact we have. So, so talk about, um, what is obviously you, you, you made it with your dad. Um, you, you obviously learned how to sell. Um, and, and where did things go from there for you in your new, Dale Carnegie venture. I mean, that's a huge look, man. Like when, when your responsibility is I eat what I kill, um, for a lack of better words. Um, but when, when you're living on commission, 
and and you're used to sitting at a computer with headphones on listening to Metallica or whatever. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but whatever, right? And, and now all of a sudden you got to go out and listen to prospects. What was the what what was that like for you? You know, it's interesting. I've heard it said Susan Kane, I think, wrote in the book Quiet that often introverts yeah. are the most effective salespeople. You know, yeah. one of the things, Ken, that I I did because I am a, a bit more oriented towards introversion is I just started showing up for these sales meetings and just listening. Yep. And I would remember what people said. And then I would synthesize it in my brain like it was a computer program. And I would come back to him and I'd say, this is what I heard you say. And people were impressed with my ability to listen. I think that was unique for them to see a sales guy, a salesperson show up and actually listen and not just listen to the immediate answers. But as you said earlier, try to listen to that underlying story that we often don't want to share and then to be able to synthesize it and, and reproduce it back to them. So I ended up becoming very effective I was very successful in sales and I ended up uh, buying the business. So in Carnegie, we're independently operated and yeah, yeah. Uh, my dad had, had the, the, the license to operate. He, had, he owned the Dale Carnegie business in the upper Midwest, as did his dad before him. I ended up buying that from my dad and uh, really went all in for it. And it, it was kind of a heady time. Frankly, Ken, I mean, I, I, it was I, it was really going well for me. And the next point where I realized I was stuck was at home because I was so effective at work and I was getting accolades and approval. And a lot of, you know, the Carnegie sales organization is designed to recognize top performers and this type of thing. And uh, I frankly, I was I grew up on this this milk of, you know, approval and positivity. And yeah. here I was just like the, the child that I was raised to be, I was getting this approval and this positivity. And then we had, we experienced a series of miscarriages and it was, uh, it was our sixth miscarriage. Wow. We, we had six miscarriages. And by, by that time uh, I had realized that I had really failed to show up for at home for my wife. Mm. And all of this focus on work, focus on growing, the accolades, the approval and the positivity made it very, very difficult, if not impossible for me to enter into the hardship and the grief of loss and brokenness at home. And so I realized that was the next frontier for me to have to grow. I was now stuck in the next level of growth. And that was uh, going deeper into those darker, harder places of life. Wow. With your wife. Yep. Wow. So, um, <clears throat> and how, how long ago was it that you had that, that realization? So you've been in the Dale Carnegie business. How long, I guess. Been in the business for 17 years. Okay. I mean, really, technically, your entire life, but, <laughs> but, but, <Right>. like, <laughs> so, so, how, at what point did you, did you have to tackle this new situation that you realized? Yeah. So that was about, um, 
how many years ago has it been now? It's it's been about um, oh seven years okay. since I had to tackle that. Okay. Um, and we yeah we we had a lot of fertility challenges and it turned into uh, marriage challenges. Yeah. And uh, just in general, I think a realization that. I was still stuck in this pattern of approval and positivity that I was raised on. You know, I mean, again, I, you know, Ken, I loved growing up in the Carnegie business. I mean, the quality of our relationships was very strong in many ways. There was very little criticism in our family, very good listeners in my family. Uh, we did, we, um, I, I'm proud that our family's done a lot of good in the world through this business. Yeah. The, the hard part is sometimes being in this environment of, you know, uh, helping others and be more positive and so forth is it it became very difficult for me to um, reconcile and enter into hard situations. And yeah. so I've just that's been the journey for me the last seven years or so is being able to reduce my need for approval and positivity yeah and be able to just admit my own brokenness and enter into other people's brokenness and hard situations and grieve and uh you know i think that's that's a that's a very important part of the human experience that uh being in minnesota nice positivity environment i often try to avoid yeah i get that i get that so so what are what do you think um what are the main things or what's the, I guess, and I ask this question of everybody and I'm a little bit early with it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what do you think the number one thing is that holds people back in life from, I, 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 they're not, I don't think these are this related necessarily, but from success and happiness and freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I can <clears throat> cheat a little bit on that answer, you say the number one thing, I think it's both what we said earlier, the ability to get outside of ourselves and focus on other people combined with the ability or willingness to self confront mm. our own brokenness in our own places where we're stuck. Wow. And how do how do how do you how do you get people to to wake up? Sometimes I think it requires a crisis. You know, like we said earlier, we yeah. have to maybe hit rock bottom yeah. in a part of our life. Sometimes I think it's a relationship can prompt that. You know, if we've got people around us yeah. that are willing to confront us or challenge us, that might put us in a position to self confront. Yeah. And I do think that coaching, training, and other stretch experiences that we can put ourselves into can cause a, us to really face the facts about who we are, who we've become, and who we need to be. Or who we want to be. You know, I, be. I, was, I was talking about this last night and the night before. I did a live stream the night before saying, you know, 
we have, and you tell me what you think. I mean, I had Dr. Jeffrey Fannin on the show last week, who's traveled the world with Dr. Joe Dispenza. And, and Dr. Fannin is one of the top neuroscientists in the world. And, and he's a friend of mine now. And, and like, you know, we talk about these limitations that we have in our, our brains um, and I think that a lot of times these limitations are, are put there by other people and we never do anything to remove them. Yeah. Stay there. Like, it's like the, the elephant with the chain, right? <laughs> right. You start it as a baby chained up. It can't get and and, and, you know, so yeah. what, what do you feel about that? How do, how do people bust through those limitations, those self-limiting beliefs? Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Well, I think one of it, one piece of it's metacognition, you know, this idea of thinking about our thinking Yeah, and really paying attention to how do I think, what do I think about? And as often we need the help of a coach or some, you know, environment that's going to really get us realizing how we're thinking yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's a big part of it. And uh, certainly, I think there's also a, a halo effect that occurs when we do start growing, where we say, oh, that's interesting. I just quit smoking, or I just, you know, lost 10 pounds, or I just yeah. learned a language, or I just got more comfortable speaking in front of a group. I wonder how I could transfer that confidence to something else. You know, it's sort of like Jim Collins talks about the flywheel versus the doom yeah. loop, right? I yeah. think there's a flywheel, and, and I would just add into that line of thinking is the James Clear Atomic Habits idea that, you know, as we build that habit, if we, as we just keep repeating the healthy or more productive thought or behavior, we eventually identify with that. We start to say, well, I am a fit person. I am a confident speaker. I am an effective fill in the blank because the flywheel has been turning and we've established the pattern or the habit of doing that. I love that, man. I, I think that, you know, and I, I talk about this a lot in my coaching and, and that is working on those, I am affirmation mm -hmm. statements and writing it out. I have a friend, um, Billy Merritt, who's a client of mine. He's a friend of mine, the guy, and he's been on the show and, and it's only a few years ago. He, I, I talked to him last, I don't know, Wednesday evening or something. And, and it was just a few years ago, this dude couldn't pay his bills. He was renting a house he couldn't pay for, and he was struggling financially. And then he saw Bob Proctor and, and Bob, Bob was talking about these affirmation statements. And, and so Billy said, Ken, I, I he goes, this, this is the secret to it all. I'm telling you, man, because Billy now does tens of millions of dollars a year in, in business. Unbelievable. And, 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 and he said, I, I learned this one statement and he goes, I said it so many times. He goes, I'd be on a four hour drive to go to meet with a car dealer. He's in the car business. He said, and, and I would say, I am so happy and grateful now that money comes to me in increasing quantities from multiple sources on a continuous basis. And he said, I would say that thousands and thousands. He goes, I'll bet you I've said that 20, 30,000 plus times. Isn't that amazing? 
And, 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 you know, when you're, when you're doing that over and over and over and over and over and over and over, you're creating these new neuro pathways and, and it's impossible once you've created this new way of thinking, right? Yeah. That's all that changed for you was a new yeah. way of thinking, a new way of viewing it. That's right. And viewing myself, right? Yeah. I just, I love how you, that story and the fact that you even remember, you know, that mantra that Billy Merritt would say. I do yeah. it every single day over yeah. and over and over. Yeah. Yeah. It re- I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's this I am statement. Who we are translates to what we do, which translates to the results that we get. Yeah. And I just, to your point, there's, so much neuroscience evidence to prove this out. And there's even personal experience to realize that once we start seeing ourselves differently, I love the, yep. the study that James Clear quotes in Atomic Habits, where he, they have the group, uh, two groups of people that are trying to quit smoking. And one group, when they're, they're offered a cigarette, says, I'm sorry, no, thank you. I'm a non-smoker. And the other group says, no, thank you. I'm trying to quit. Yes. And they show that the group of who declared that I am a non-smoker was exponentially more successful at yep. not sm- at refusing the cigarette than the group that said, I'm trying to quit smoking. You yep. know, so it's just, it, it's so fascinating to think about the messages that we tell ourselves. Who do we say that I am? And right. what verdicts are we getting, frankly, from ourselves and from the people around us, yep. our faith, our friends, our family? What are the verdicts? that are being whispered into our ear about who we are. Dude, that's, that's so true. So it's so powerful. If I could, you know, my, my one purpose in life is to get the human race to understand that whatever you're, the conversations you're having with yourself about who you are and what you're capable of, that's what's, that's, what's holding you back in life. There's yeah. nothing else. Nothing else. Yeah. I, so I, I, nothing. Nothing. Yeah. I, I promise you. There's nothing else. So yeah. So so l- let me let me ask you. I know that you um, you ended up writing a book. Yeah. Let's talk about your book first. I'm going to give you full screen. I want you to talk about it. Share it with everybody. Yeah. There's the book right there. Four patterns of healthy people. How to what's, what's, the subtitle? what's that? What's the subtitle? How to grow past your rooted behaviors, discover a deeper connection with others, and reach your full potential in life and business. Nice. So, so talk about the the catalyst. What what made you write the book? Well, it's my personal story and the stories of so many others that I've helped to coach and train through my work. It's the realization, like we said earlier, that at some point in our life we develop these ways of thinking and behaving or ways of identifying ourselves as an adaption to our environment. And every day we repeat those thoughts and behaviors to succeed or survive. And then one day we realize we're stuck. We realize it's not working for us anymore, as we've said throughout this conversation. And so because of that, we have an opportunity to either self-confront and grow or remain stuck, just as this podcast is dedicated to. And so because of that, People and organizations have an opportunity to either foster their own ongoing growth and development or remain stuck. And so that's why I wrote this book is really to help people. You know, patterns are inevitable, uh, but growth is optional in how we think, relate to others, view ourselves and make choices about how we operate. So this book, it's really more of a workbook than anything else. It's got 
all these uh, assessments and exercises to do that really help someone to self-confront and have greater self-awareness and then uh, start to move in a more productive and healthy direction. I am I'm literally posting the link to your book right now. Um, I've, I've posted the link so everybody can go click on that and go grab a copy of it over on Amazon. Uh, how, how, when did the book come out? About two and a half. It came out in September of 2020, which okay. is interesting timing with everything yeah. going on in the fall into winter of 2020. Yeah. So many people wanting to just get out of 2020 because of obvious pandemic and yeah. economic and other factors. And yeah. uh, so I think, you know, increasingly we're, I'm in a lot of conversations with friends, family and clients yeah. about the anxiety, the isolation, and frankly, too, the self-protection that we're often developing in this environment. Yeah. And uh, so this book, I, I've heard from a lot of people, has been really well-timed. There's for people who buy the book, there's a link to a, a series of discussion questions that a small group or a book club could take themselves through over about eight weeks. And I've had many people tell me that it's changed the conversation with their leadership team or their group of friends as yeah. a result of going through those questions together during this time, especially. Is is this um, some of this rooted in Dale Carnegie training? There's definitely a foundation of Dale Carnegie, without a doubt. I, I talk about some of the ideas from Dale Carnegie in the book, as well as my personal experience with Dale Carnegie. And so much, of, as we said, of Dale Carnegie is about getting our minds off of ourselves and focusing on other people, which is at the root of all four of the patterns. Wow, that's really awesome. Can you name the four patterns? Yeah, how we think. So that's our metacognition. Yeah. And a part of that is these, you know, these thoughts of that are unproductive or draining that often enter our mind are how we identify, how we see ourselves, and how yeah. we how we view the world, frankly. That's our thought pattern. Our second is our relationship pattern. That's the pattern that we have with other people in terms of our ab ability to embrace or enter into difficult conversations, difficult situations in relationships versus avoiding those. And then also the part of our relationships that really seeks approval and frankly enmeshment with other people rather than a healthy separation. So that's the second area. The third is our ego. When we talk about ego, we don't mean so much being arrogant or cocky, which is sometimes how we associate ego. That's certainly part of it. Humility is a piece of it. But egos, really the image that we seek to project to the world, that what we psychologists refer to as our false self, right? That, that part of the world that we want to show everybody else or that we think the other world, that the world expects of us. And it's really about being our more true or authentic self. And then the fourth pattern is our choices about how we operate and specifically how we manage our energy and our focus so that we can think, relate to others and manage our ego more productively. You know, when I'm drained of energy or sleep deprived uh, because of social media or my phone or chemicals that I put in my body or my sleep ha habits, it's much more difficult for me to have productive thinking, relationships and ego. And so we have that fourth pattern there. It's so important. It's really the fuel or the foundation to having healthy patterns in the other areas. Do you find that, that, and, and I, I, I 
preach on this a lot, probably. Um, you know, I think that people people have this maybe program that's running that says there's an external force, i.e., God, um, that is a puppet master, and mm-hmm. and it's God's fault that your life is great, or it's God's fault that your life sucks, and I happen to think that it's your fault <laughs> either way that God gave you free will. I believe that there's a, a force, we'll call it God, that that will definitely bless the work that you're doing. But but do you find that people stay stuck because of that? Because yeah. they, they, they want to blame something externally? Yeah, that's really well said. It reminds me, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who said, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Yeah. You know, and that we, we I mean, certainly we can't control our circumstances, right? I mean, there's any number of circumstances we could find ourselves in, yet some people choose and to have an internal locus of control and other people choose to have an external locus of control, right? This idea that that things happen from me or things happen to me. And, you know, I think those people that have an external locus of control, this idea that things happen to me, I'm a victim of my circumstances. I can't help it. I'm either going to be successful or I'm not. I either am wired this way or I'm not. You know, it's it's like Carol Dweck talks about in her book, Mindset, this idea of it's I'm fixed. I just need to prove myself that to myself that I can or can't do these things versus an internal locus of control, which is to say that, no, I can think differently. I can change my response to my circumstances. And ultimately, I can I can manage or influence my circumstances. I can't control my circumstances, but I can influence my circumstance. That's a growth mindset. Rather than proving myself, I'm trying to improve myself. And that goes back to your question of what's the number one thing that holds people back. I think it's a lack of acceptance and agreement that I can manage my life. I am not a victim. Amen, man. Amen. I agree. <laughs> totally agree with that. So, so, uh, you know, I didn't have the, the upbringing that you had. Uh, mine was quite different. And, and, you know, I, I've, I've been in the unfortunate position of watching my vehicle get repossessed in front of a bunch of employees that worked for me. That was an interesting day. Um, but you know, for the person right now that is watching this or listening to this, that maybe they've had a car repoed recently, their electrics getting shut off tomorrow, the, the whole world feels like it's crumbling around them and, and they, they just don't know what to do. I mean, Matt, the, the, the reality is, is, is suicide rates are through the roof right now. Mm-hmm. And they have been since the whole pandemic you know, started like, what do you say to the person that's barely hanging on to life, mm. not knowing what way to turn? What would you say to that person that, that's listening right now? Well, I think the first thing Ken is, is to say that's really hard and not minimize it. You know, yeah. uh, I think sometimes we may be tempted just to minimize the challenges that people are going through and, and try to give an easy answer, you know, Oh, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps or, you know, think more positively, uh, you know, keep working hard. 
um, or maybe we minimize it. It's not really that bad. You know, it could be worse. Look at look around the world. You know, I, I think the first thing I would say is I'm sorry. That's really hard. I'm, that's really really hard, and to enter into that grief or that hardship, and then to say, okay, what can you do? First of all, we can manage the way we think about this situation. We can either yeah. think about it as a victim. We can either we can ruminate on the hardship, or we can release parts that we can't control. We can accept. Uh, we can even welcome the way in which our situation is causing us to grow. And then we can surround ourselves with healthy relationships to work together to get through it. We can have an appropriate view of ourselves, not thinking too highly of ourselves or too entitled that I, I deserve this. How could this be happening to me? Uh, yeah. And then finally, we can start making some good choices about how we operate. Uh, I mean, simple things like managing our own energy and not just medicating or coping with the challenges through, you know, our phone or chemicals or whatever that might be that, that we might turn to, but rather making healthier choices about uh, how we will manage our energy and our focus to get through it. That's what I would say. Love that, man. You know, I, I, I think, and to, um, I guess your point of, of getting out of ourselves, um, in, in the recovery movement, which I've been in now for over 18 years. Um, one of the fundamental principles, I remember hearing this old guy from New York, old gruff, recovered alcoholic guy with 40 years sober or something. And, and, and I remember being in this um, meeting and hearing his story. And he's like, if you want to know how to have a good life and, and, and long-term sobriety, the secret. And I remember like I, I, he paused and, and I'm hinging on like, you know, and, and, and I'm like, okay. And he's like, the secret is in the bottom of the coffee pots and the ashtrays. Hmm. And this is back when you could smoke in, in AA meetings. But so, and I'm thinking, what in the, what is he talking about? He's like, when you, when you get here early, you help set up the meeting, you make the coffee, you set the ashtrays out at the end of the meeting, you get the coffee pot and you go clean it. And you're of service to your fellow man. You're helping other people. And that's the secret is, is in the bottom of the coffee pots. Mm. And, and, you know, I've lived my life like that mm. for the most part since then. And, and it's true, man. When you, if you're going through it right now, mm. and, and Matt, I think you'd agree. If you're really going through a tough time, the best way to get to better times is to help other people that are going through a tough yeah. time. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. That's so, so well said. So well said in the ashtrays and the coffee cups. Or the it coffee is, cups. Man. Yeah. I just uh, love that. And if we just start showing up for other people yeah, bit by bit, bit by bit, we will start to uh, recover. How, how, how can everybody, first off, maybe there might, might be some people on here that want to talk to you about your Dale Carnegie program. 
um what what is what's the best way to what's your website address mattnorman.com so okay. people can connect with me through that okay you can also go to fourpatterns.com the word four patterns.com if people want to read more about the book or just go directly to amazon or any other major bookseller yeah. and uh, also happy to connect on linkedin if you i, I write an article that I post to mattnorman.com and to LinkedIn every week or two on related topics. And uh, so if people want to follow those, we would, uh, would enjoy that connection. Awesome. Awesome. Matt, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, your vulnerability, man. That's, that's, um, that's tough being that transparent about, about your, you know, shortcomings and, you know, my hat's off to you for that. So thank you. You too, Ken. Thanks for creating a safe environment to do that and for doing it with so many people. Yeah, man. Thank you. And 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 for anybody that wants to follow Matt, go over to mattnorman.com. It's scrolling across the bottom there. Um, and and connect with Matt on LinkedIn. What about Facebook and Instagram and Twitter? Are you out there? I'm on Twitter. I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, and I I, uh, I am on Facebook as well. Okay. I, I'm uh, I'm a fledgling Instagram <laughs> uh, person, so uh, but I I uh, certainly value all the platforms, and uh, probably the best way is to go to mattnorman.com or on LinkedIn, yeah. and uh, look forward to trying to build some new connections. Awesome. Through, uh, the honor of being on your show, Ken. Hey, thank you. Don't hang up on me, but I'm going to end this and, and I'd like to chat with you afterwards. So okay. thank you guys. I appreciate everybody that's watched. Thank you to everyone who shared. If you did not share this out, you still have an opportunity to redeem yourself. Go ahead and share it out. Thank you guys. Appreciate you all so much. Matt, thank you again. I appreciate you. Thanks everyone. Alrighty. Bye-bye.